You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you today. I hope you're doing well. If you'll go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be. So if you'll um, grab a Bible, that would be really helpful to have it out and open on your lap. And while you're doing that, uh, let me just address two quick things. Um, One is that today is Father's Day. And so to our men in the room who are fathers, we want to just take a moment to honor you and uh, to let you know how much we're praying for you. I, you know, I can't describe how many of our hopes for our church family are tied to young men, you know, or young boys growing into godly men who will pastor their families, who, who will recognize the distinct voice that God has given them in their families, um, who will take on the responsibility, who will, who will carry the burdens of others. Um, as part of what being a man is, who will grow into this sort of a person, who will show their family what it means to, to live with God, what, what life with God looks like, what it means to love God, who will do all of those sorts of things. And men, I just want you to know that, that we're praying for you toward that. When I think of the calling of fatherhood, it is such a high calling, high calling. I mean, we, we want to be a place who creates, by God's grace, men who are stepping into that and doing a wonderful job of pastoring and shepherding Uh, their families. And so for the men in the room, I want you to know that on a day like today, we are praying especially for you um, toward that end. And secondly, I know that on a day like today, it is very difficult for some in the room uh, because today is a reminder of, of maybe a father that you didn't have. And today might be a reminder of maybe it's a father that was a distant dad or a hard dad or just not, just not a very good dad. Or maybe like Laura, uh, my wife, today would be a reminder of a dad that that doesn't live anymore, that, that has passed away. And for, for everyone in that category this morning, now I want you to know that, that the gospel is such great news for you today. It, it has such wonderful news for you personally if today is a hard day for you. I was reminded this week of um, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, was asked the question, what is a Christian? And here's his response to that, that question. He said, that, you know, the question could be answered in many ways, but listen to what he says. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. You hear that? The richest answer we could give to what is a Christian is one who has God as their father. So regardless of what kind of a dad you did or didn't have, here's what every Christian can celebrate today is we have a perfect father in God. Amen? And uh, secondly, I want to just repeat this. I I said this last week to our entire church family, just in light of us being in the month of June, which is kind of halfway through the year, that this is a wonderful time to do a check on your generosity for 2014. And I mention that because I know that the love of money runs deep in all of our hearts, including mine. It's all of us in the room. And one of the ways that a love of money is expressed is through pushing down an awareness of, of generosity, just not paying attention to it. It's one of the ways that, that the love of money kind of gets us, is we don't know if we're giving or how much we're giving. And in light of that, I want to make sure that, that, that you don't fit into that category. Like one of the ways we can fight against that little love of money thing in us is for us to pay attention to these things. And I want you to hear my heart in this. This is not because we want something from you. It is because we want something for you, namely for you and I to be free from the love of money so we can be free to worship Jesus with everything in us. That's our heart. We want to be a church family who excels in the gift of giving. And so I'm going to ask you to do something this week in light of that. If you'll make sure that this week you check your 2014 generosity so you can ask the question, is our family being generous? 
in the way that we're giving, is it evidence that we believe the gospel of grace and all that we have and all that we are in Jesus? So if you'll do that this week, if you'll check that, I would greatly appreciate that. Okay, Mark chapter 12. Let, let me um, kind of get into this text by um, kind of this angle. You know, by God's grace tonight, you are going to go to bed, and by God's grace, hopefully wake up, and it's going to be Monday morning tomorrow. And I want to ask you the question. You're going to wake up on Monday morning, and, and what are your hopes for Monday? Like, you're going to live a 24-hour period tomorrow, and what are your hopes when you're going to evaluate? It's at the end of your Monday, and you're looking back over it. You're going to evaluate, how did Monday go? What sort of thoughts are you going to carry with that? Like, like what, what are you hoping happened on Monday because you lived? You, you see what I'm asking there? Like, what are your hopes for the day? We could ask it this way. What is your life about? Like, what are you doing with your life? That's another way to ask the exact same question. Now, I know that in a room like this, when I throw those sort of questions out, there's going to be some who are going to have like this sort of impulse. Man, I don't ask those sort of questions, right? I just like get up on Monday and I just live and kind of do what's before me and I'd go to bed and do it all over again on Tuesday. But listen, if you don't ask those sort of questions, you're going to cut yourself off from one of God's major means of grace to you. One of God's major means of grace is asking that question, what in the world is my life about? Like what, what difference do I want to have made in the fact that I have lived and breathed and done all of those things? That is one of God's graces toward you to lead you into fruitfulness and joy in your life. And I, I want you to know that that question, like God is, he does not want his sons and daughters to live aimless lives. Like God's revealed will is for you to get before you a certain set of significant things and for you to give your life to those things. Like God's revealed will is not for us to just be like a drift at sea, that, you know, our day and lives just kind of dictated by circumstance, but for us to get in front of us certain aims and to get our lives pointed in that direction and then to give our lives to those aims. I love how one pastor puts this. He says it this way. Aimlessness is akin to lifelessness. So, so when you're aimless, you're also lifeless. Dead leaves in the backyard move around more than anything else, more than the dog, more than the children. The wind blows this way, they go that way. The wind blows that way, and they go that way. They tumble, they bounce, they skip, but they have no aim whatsoever. They are full of motion and empty of life. God didn't create humans in his image to be aimless, like lifeless, like lifeless leaves blown around in the backyard. He created us to be purposeful, to have a focus and aim, and, and you know, aim at that focus for all of our days, to find what we were made for, and to do that, what we were made for with all God's might, that's a freeing thing and an energizing thing. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, John 4, 34. And he follows it up by saying this, aiming day by day to do what you were meant to do is like eating. It gives life and energy. But conversely, on the other hand, you'll eventually die if you do not do what you were meant and created to do. Like, so let me just sum that up again. God's revealed will for you and I is not that we would live aimless lives, but that we would get before us a few very important and significant things and aim our lives at those things. Give our lives wholly to those things. Now, here's what I love about the passage that's before us this morning. is in this passage, Jesus shows us what, 
what our lives should be aimed at. He cuts through all the clutter of what your life could be about, what your life could be you know, made up of, what your Monday could be spent doing. And he boils all of that down and says, let me cut through all of that and give you simple aims. Like put this at the center of your life, give your life to this, and it's gonna be energizing. It's what you were created to do. So it starts in verse um, 28 of, of Mark 12. A man comes up to Jesus with a question. And here's the question in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, that he, talking about Jesus, answered these other scribes well and these other religious leaders well, this particular scribe asked this question. What commandment is the most important of all? In other words, out of all the things that we could aim our lives at, what would you, God, have us aim our life at? What would be God's revealed will for us to point our life at and to give all of our days, all of our energy toward? What is that? Here's Jesus' answer. Three verses cuts through every command, every desire God has for his sons and daughters. All of that is cut through in these three verses. Verse 29, Jesus answered. What should you aim your life at? This. The most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That was last week. It is this wholehearted, whole-souled, completely like all chips in sort of love. Like we're to love God like that. And that's what we spent last week on. Now we get to verse 31. Here's the second thing Jesus says, and this is what we're spending this week on. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's where we're spending our morning. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? So I'm going to come at this from four different angles. And here's the first one. I want to just spend a moment connecting the the two commands. Just tying together command one, love God. Command two, love your neighbor. Connecting these two things together. And it's very clear in the Bible that these two things go together. One of the clearest places you can see that is in 1 John 4. This will be up on the screen for you. 1 John 4, um, 20 and 21. I just want you to see how the Bible consistently, I could you know, put several other verses in here. It consistently ties these two commands of loving God, loving others together. Here's how John puts it. If anyone says, I love God. So we're saying commandment one, we're to love God. So now if we're saying if we love God, but then it goes on. But if they say, I love God, and they hate their brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has not who he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I I think maybe you could think of how these two things are tied like this. Here would be one illustration of it. It's like a coin. That if you have, like, and there's two sides of the coin. Commandment one's on one side of the coin. Commandment two's on the other side. So these two, two commands are, are tied together in that way. If you have the coin of faith in Jesus and love of, of God, you're going to have the other side of love of your neighbor, love of your brother. Like both of those two things are tied together in that way. Um, here's another way to maybe think about the correlation between the two. It's not just that they're like a coin and tied together. It's that one flows from the other. So this, this love of neighbor is a command that flows from a love of God. So maybe you could picture it like a spring and a stream. The spring where the water comes from is this love of God. And that spring then bubbles up water and it flows into a stream that you would call love your neighbor. But they're connected in that way. 
The water comes from here and it flows toward this love of neighbor. So, so they're connected in that sort of a way. Maybe another way to see how these two things are connected is love of neighbor is dependent upon our love of God. So how we respond to our neighbor and loving our neighbor is showing us how we're responding to and loving God. Are you, are you seeing that? See, a failure to love our neighbor is always, first and foremost, a failure to love God. These two things are connected in all those ways, like the coin, like the spring and a stream. They flow from one another. It's showing you, if, if you're missing one of them, it's showing you that you're missing the other one. They're connected in all those sorts of ways. So that's the connection. Now, let's try to clarify what the command means. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what does he mean by that? So just like last week, um, there is a who, there's a what, and there's a how. Who or, A what, who, and a how here. Okay? So, so here's maybe how we could kind of work through this. There's the what. The what is love. He is saying, I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to love them. I want you to give your life away to them. And we're going to do some work on developing what this idea of love looks like and means. But, he, but he's clearly saying, I want you to love. Then here is the who. That is directed in a certain place. The first commandment, it's directed toward God, out that way, upward toward God. The second commandment is it's, is it's out toward other people. It's to your neighbor. Now, in, in Luke chapter 10, um, Jesus clarifies the greatest commandments again. A guy asked him a similar question, and he responds by saying, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And now that, that statement by Jesus led to that man asking him another question, and it begs this question. Well, if you're telling me to love my neighbor, the question is, who is my neighbor? Who fits into that category of neighbor? And this is in, in Luke 10, and Jesus responds by telling him the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? And here is the point of the parable. Here's the point of what Jesus is saying. He's defining who your neighbor is and and how we're to love other people. And he's saying this in that parable. The overarching point goes like this. There are to be no restrictions of your love. The way that you would love other people, like like this whole category of people out there, the, the way that you're to love all of them is like without limits. That your neighbor covers everyone in your life that God providentially puts there. Everyone, that there is not like a certain group of people that fit outside of that boundary. And see, one of all of our problems is we have people in our life that we would look at and say they're lovable and they're not lovable. And in in Luke 10, Jesus is saying, no, that's not how this works. Like what I'm telling you in the second commandment, the greatest commandment is that we're to love all of them, both the people you feel like are lovable and the people you feel like are not lovable. That the way I've commanded you to love and enabled you to love would cover all of those categories. That it is to be a love without restriction. Every, every race, this is one of the reasons that we are tied up with and we stress and emphasize that we want to be a culturally diverse church. That we want to have all ethnicities represented. Because we want to learn what it looks like to love our neighbor. Neighbor love demands that. Demands it. That we figure out what it looks like to love people across racial and ethnic divides. It would be every, every, not only every color, but every class of people. Every political view. Every like sexual orientation. And every other line that our culture would draw around, these people are lovable to me and these people are not. Jesus is saying, those lines don't exist. Neighbor covers them all. 
Maybe I could put it in these four simple categories for you. When he's talking about um, neighbor, he is talking about all of these categories. Number one, people who are like you. Those people. He's saying that that neighbor love would cover them. Now, the Bible is also going to be clear, though, that people who are like you doesn't really require supernatural sort of a love. In in, uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says that even the tax collectors and the pagans can love people who are like you. Like it's a worldly love. Like they scratch your back, so you scratch their back, right? So people who are like you, they would fit into the neighbor category. But it would also cover people who are unlike you, that they don't see the world like you see the world. They don't look like you. They don't think like you. They don't talk like you. They don't behave like you. They, They don't have your perspective on things. And part of what it means to love your neighbor is that they fit into the neighbor category, that we're to love those people too, people who are unlike you. Thirdly, people who dislike you. Now that gets a little bit harder there, doesn't it? I mean, this is where it, like, it, this is where it actually requires the grace of God to do this. People, people who dislike you. Like when, when your name comes up in conversation, they maim your name. It does not go well when your name comes up in front of them. And, and then you've got the people who hate you. Like they actually are, like they are actively opposed in trying to persecute you. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, he is saying your neighbor fits in all of those people. People like you, that aren't like you, that dislike you, that hate you, and everything in between those people. That's your neighbor. And your love is to be without restriction. It's not to be limited to any one of those categories, but all of those categories. And then there's a how. So there's a what, love, there's a who, your neighbor, and then there's a how. And and here's how he talks about it. He says, as yourself, as yourself. Now, we need to do just a little bit of work on on this phrase because in our culture, we are so obsessed with self-esteem that that people take this passage, and here's what they teach. They, they, They will take this passage and say, see, what Jesus is teaching is you should first love you. That they would almost say Jesus is commanding you to love you. And I want to just be super clear here. Jesus is not commanding self-love. He is assuming self-love. You're not going to find a command in the Bible to love yourself. Not going to find that. The Bible assumes that there is a deep self-love in you. Just to tease that out, you could think of it this way. The human problem is not one of self-hate. The human problem is one of self-love. Right Now, let me just try to play that out and see, just to make sure this is connecting. See, part of how self-love can work its way out into to your life and, and my life is when things are going well, self-love looks like a prideful, kind of boastful self-confidence. This is what we might call a good self-esteem. But it's a lot of self-confidence, a lot of self-boasting. But when self-love does not get its way in our life, it looks like this, not a high self-esteem, but a low self-esteem. It looks like self-loathing. But I want you to see underneath both high self-esteem and low self-esteem is self. And the solution to self is never love yourself more. It's get your eyes off of you and onto Jesus. That's the solution for both of those two things. So this is not, a, this is not Jesus saying you should love yourself more. This is Jesus assuming that you love yourself a whole lot, right? Okay, now let's kind of tease out how this would, would work. When he says love your neighbor as yourself, he is saying, I want, you to, I want to invite you to think about how you love you. Think about how passionate you are to get your needs met. Think about how, how um, demanding you are that you're going to be heard, that you're going to get your rights in life, right? 
I mean, think about all the ways that a self-love works its way out in your life. That you're gonna work hard so that you can have food, that you can have shelter, that you can do all of these different things, right? And he is saying in this, now, now you see how that self-love works itself out in you? Now I want you to turn that self-love that you have, all of these ways that you're loving you, and I want you to do that with just as much energy and passion for them, for your neighbor. Are you seeing this sort of craziness that Jesus is talking about here? I love how one pastor says it. He says, this command to love your neighbor as yourself, it's Jesus saying, I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, all the delight, all the creativity, all the consistency with which you meet your own needs. Are we seeing that? He is saying here, let me read this one more time. I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy. And remember these others are your neighbors, people who like you, dislike you, are not like you, hate you, all of them. I I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, delight, creativity, and consistency with which you meet your own needs. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, sail on that. that. That is crazy talk. Now, let's just ratchet this up one more level. In John 13, he says, a new command I give you. Um, I, I don't just want you to, to like love your neighbor as, as you love yourself. I actually want you to love your neighbor like I have loved you. So, so let's just change this one, one little phrase here and say it this way. Maybe we could think of John 13 as Jesus saying this. Not just I want you to, to do it in, in the way that you would love you, but I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, delight, creativity, and consistency which, with which I have met yours. This is the sort of neighbor love that Jesus is talking about. The sort of radical, self-sacrificing, self-denying. I am gonna work at, at pleasing you, making, you know, meeting your needs. I'm gonna work hard at that sort of love. It's, and it's an extreme calling that Jesus places on our life here. Okay, now I wanna try to, to work through applying this. Applying it. And you know, I think that there is a reason why I could literally put up several dozen passages in the New Testament that would talk about the importance of us loving other people. I mean, we, we could put a whole list of passages up here, and I think there's a reason. It's because it is hard. Can we all just see that and recognize that this morning? This command, what Jesus is calling us to here, is really, really difficult. I mean, I, I just want to tell you on the front end, I feel like I, I'm not a tour guide here. I am a fellow traveler on the way by God's grace of doing this better. But I, I want to kind of work through what, what this means when he says, um, love, the Lord, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's press this down into our lives now. And I want to do it in two ways. One way I want to look at it inside the church family, and the other way outside the church family. So first, we'll talk about it in terms of inside the church family. What, what does it mean to love our neighbor inside of our local church family? Okay, so first of all, let me just kind of tie this little knot on it, or tie this little bow around it. Um, There is a sense in which this command is meant to be prioritized in the local church family. Now, let me just kind of camp first on the idea of of church family. In the Bible, that is how the the Bible sees your church. Your your church is seen in the Bible as a family. So so just think about this. Um, We have all been, you know, that make up the, the real church, we have all been rescued by our elder brother Jesus, and we've been adopted in, into God's family. And this is why J.I. Packer would say, what is a Christian? The richest thing I could tell you is that a Christian is one who can call God his father. 
That is the richest thing that we can say. And so if that is true about a Christian, if we have had this same experience of of being rescued by Jesus and being adopted by God the Father, where we now look up and call God our Father, and if I'm doing that and you are a Christian and you're doing that, you're calling God Father, what would that make us? Family, brothers and sisters, right? See, this is is the paradigm of, of how the Bible would see the church that we are brothers and sisters in the context of the church. And the Bible is gonna say this. Part of when Jesus says, love your neighbor, it is very clear that Jesus means we are to love without restriction. Okay, so that's the point of love your neighbor. But the Bible is also going to say that there should be an emphasis on love within the church family. Okay, so let me just give you one clear place that we can see this. Um, This is gonna be in um, Galatians chapter six, verse 10. This will be on the screen for you. I just want you to see that, yes, Jesus is saying the way we love ought to be without restriction, everyone that God providentially puts in our path, but there should be a very distinct way we love those within the church. Okay, here's how he says it in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That is neighbor love, love without restriction. Let us do good to everyone. And then he goes on, and especially... Now with emphasis, so we've got this everyone category, and now with emphasis, let us do this. And, and especially to those who are of the household, the family of faith. You see what he's saying? That yes, neighbor love is to be without restriction, but there should be a very clear sort of emphasis placed in every believer's life to get inside of a church family and to love them well inside of a church family. And listen, that love for the local church, this church family, is not based on a human leader, amen? Human leaders will always fail you. It's not based on a program or a building or a facility. They're always gonna get old. It's not even based on kind of the friendships that we have. Our friendships are going to come and go. Our love for the local church is not built on any of those things, not even what we can get out of, because there's gonna be days where you don't get things out of it. Right, the, the love of the local church is not built on any of those things. It is built on the fact that Jesus, at the cost of his very life, has purchased it. That the reason Christians love the local church is because our elder brother Jesus, who rescued us, loves the local church with special emphasis, with a special sort of a love. Now, I, I wanna just kind of work through in light of that, that special sort of love that should be had within a church family, what that love looks like within a church family. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and we're applying it to a church family now, what should that love look like? What should be the contours, the context of that love? And to do that, I want to just work through a few of the one another passages in the New Testament. There's 59 times in the New Testament where there's a one another. Like, as a church family, you you should love one another like this. There's 59 of those in the New Testament. And I just encourage you, I'm gonna post these online this week. I'd encourage you to read through those this week and just ask the question, how can I love our church family like this? How can I do it like that? And so I think these one another passages give substance and, and, and you know, a reality to this kind of abstract idea of loving our, our church family. So let me just walk through nine of the 59. I'm just gonna give you just nine of them really briefly. Nine ways that we can love our church family, not nine of the one another's in the New Testament. Here's the first one. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10, be be devoted to one another. Now, I want you to just look around at faces across the room. Just kind of look around and maybe get one or two faces, just people around you there. You can look to your right and left. And this is part of your church family. You just see those faces. 
Kind of awkward looking over there, I know. Yeah. And it's about to get more awkward, right? So, so this, is, this is part of your church family. And I want you to know, but by God's grace, I hope that we get to do life together for the next 30, 40 years until we die, until Jesus comes back, one or the other. So I, I hope we're in this thing for the long haul. But when you look around and, and you see those faces, I want you to know this, that those are going to be the exact same people who stab you right in the back, <laughs> who are going to gossip about you, who are probably going to kick you when you're down every now and then. They're the same people that are going to do all of that. Like, okay, now look at me here, because I'm being dead serious. You're in a church full of sinners. You know that, right? And, and their sin is going to spill over into your life just like your sin is going to spill over into their life. And listen, when you look around and, and if you think about our church family, if you, don't, if you don't already have serious hurts, it's because of one of two reasons. You don't know us well enough or you don't know us long enough. That's the only two reasons. If you don't have like serious hurts right now. Now, let me tell you what most people do. And listen, that is true of every church family. If you're going to look for one that's not going to hurt you, that you're going to be perfectly safe within, you're going to spend a long time looking, right? You're not going to find that. This is part of what it means to do life with other sinful people who have been redeemed by Jesus. There's going to be moments where it's really stinking hard to love one another. And now listen, this is what most people do when this moment happens where for some reason, whatever, maybe I've sinned against them, they've sinned against us, Their personality is just grating on me. I just don't really like them right now, that moment. If you've been around here for long, we we have this uh, term, cruddy valley, to describe that. It's this moment where you fall into cruddy valley with another human being, and it's hard. It's where we would rather like bail than than to stick in. So so in that moment when we fall into cruddy valley, it is hard to love that person. We've sinned against them. They've sinned against us. We both sinned against one another. It's just hard. Their personality is different from ours. They're just, in our mind, we think they're an idiot. They think we're an idiot. All of that moment is happening. In that moment, what almost everyone in our culture, church culture does is they'll say this, I'm bailing. I'm out. I'll withdraw. I'm not going to stick in on that. So we'll switch home groups. And, and if we just, you know, we, after we get a few home groups under our belt and that's not, hadn't worked, then we'll just try to switch churches in hopes that we'll find it over there. And, and maybe you could just call that category run, that we'll run. And listen, if, if you're a runner, when you fall into Cruddy Valley, if you're a runner, like it hurts, it's painful, I don't want to do this, so I'm just going to withdraw and not do it. If you're a runner, can I just tell you, you are going to stunt your growth in Jesus, Part of how Jesus has designed us to grow up in our faith is by putting us in the context of other sinful people and us having to learn how to love them. That's part of us growing up. So don't run. See, here's the other option. We can actually respond with the gospel. We can apply the gospel to our own sin, to their sin, and we can figure out what it looks like to love that human being in the midst of the difficulty of it. And can I just say, that's what it means to be devoted to one another. You don't run when it gets hard. You stick in and you figure out what it looks like to to love that person in light of how Jesus has loved you. That's what it means to be devoted. So let me just ask you the question. Are you devoted to one another? When you think about this church family and the people that are difficult from you, do you just write them off? Are you devoted to them? Here's the second way love can be expressed. It's through serving one another. Galatians 5.13. It's another one of the one another passages. When I think about a morning like this, for us to be able to come into a room like this, for me to be able to preach to you, for you to be able to listen this morning and hopefully be encouraged this morning, 
do you know how many people are serving you to make that happen? A whole bunch. A whole bunch. I'm so grateful for the way that our church family is serving one another. And let me just ask you the question. Part of what love looks like in the context of a local church is that you're serving one another. So is that you? Are you serving, in the context of the church family, one another? Another way it can be expressed, number three, is we carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6.10. Carrying one another's, one another's burdens. When I think about the last five years, for, for my life in particular, and for our family, Laura and I and our kiddos, I can pretty confidently say, I don't think we would have survived without a church family who could bear burdens with us. I don't think we would have. I'm so grateful for how the church does this. Aren't you? For how the church bears burdens with you. Now, let me ask you the question. Are you bearing any other burdens? Like the burdens of people around you, families around you, marriages? Are you bearing burdens? This is part of what it means to love one another. Number four, we forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32. This means that when we are hurt really deeply by another person in our church family, that we, Ephesians 4.32, we forgive because God has forgiven us. In the same sort of way that God has looked on us with grace and mercy, we look on others with grace and mercy. We cancel the debt that other people have accrued against us in their sin against us. So can I ask you the question, are you forgiving one another? Is there any person in our church that you have harbored resentment for? Like right now, when their name comes up, it's got a lot of negative things about it. And that's telling you that I'm, I'm not forgiving right now. I'm harboring, forgive, or I'm harboring bitterness and resentment toward them. Is there anyone that needs forgiveness? Number five, that we encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. This is a proactive that we are seeking with our words and actions to build one another up, to spur one another on to love and good works. Do you take moments out of your days and weeks where you would think about someone else in our church family and think, how can I encourage them today to love Jesus more? How can I help them see and remind them of how Jesus is at work in them? How I've seen that. How I've seen the grace of God at work in their life. See, this is part of what it means to love one another. We would encourage one another. Number six, do not slander one another. James um, 4.11. This is the other side of the encouragement thing. That, that, you know, there's one side of we want to proactively build up, and there's the other side of we don't want to tear down unnecessarily. And that's what slander is. And, and let me just quickly say this. I think in our culture, this is such an area of dysfunction for us. So let me just say how I think we respond. Nine out of ten people respond to conflict in their life. It's either in one of two ways. Number one, we get hurt by some other person, and here's how we respond. We go get them, and we hate them. Like, this is the aggressive approach, right? You've hurt me, so let's put the boxing gloves on, and I'm about to hurt you. This is the alpha male sort of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it happen right now sort of a, a way of approaching conflict. Now, here's the other way, and depending on your wirings, you're gonna be in one of these two categories probably. The other way is not the go get them and hate them. It's you're not gonna go get them, but you're gonna hate them. You know what I'm talking about? This is the passive aggressive approach. This is I'm offended, They've really hurt me, but I'm not going to sit down with them and try to apply the gospel to this moment and situation and work this thing out. Now, I'm going to sit in my house on my couch, and every time their name comes up, I'm going to pound them. Every time, every time I think about their name, I'm going to club them in my heart. That's the passive-aggressive approach. And listen, both of those are slanderous. Both of those are not Christian love. What Christian love is, is the third approach. It's you go get them and you love them. That's the Christian approach. 
That's distinctively Christian conflict resolution. It's not that we go get them and hate them, or we don't go get them and hate them, but we go get them and we actually seek to love them right where they are. And that is, that is how Christians should handle conflict. We go get them and we love them. It's not that we don't go get them and we still just bash them in our hearts with slander, right? When their name comes up, we just maim them. And it's not that we go get them and our aggression comes out because we've got stuff we want to get out. It's no, we go get them because we want to serve them and love them. Do not slander one another. Number seven, offer hospitality to one another. This is 1 Peter 4 9. This is opening your home. This is, this is allowing people to come into your home and be refreshed because they've been with you. This is meeting with people. This is loving on people. Number eight, confess your sins to one another. James 5, 16. It's letting people in on what's happening in your heart. Things that are being repented of. Things that are being worked through. How the grace of God is at work in you. It's inviting people into all of that. And number nine, that we pray for and with one another. James 5, 16. That we're interceding with, for one another. We're praying for God to break through in areas of our lives together. In marriages, in, in kids, in our own life and sin. That we're praying for one another. So let me ask you the question. Are those things happening? Are those one another's happening for you? Now let me tie this last thing together and then we'll move on. All of those one another's, they can only happen in the context of a local church. That's where that is supposed to play out. And listen, the church is not a building or a gathering like this. That the church is the people of God that have all come together and said, this is our place. This is where the one another's are going to happen here. So I guess here's my, my angst for some of us in the room is we have been floating without a church home for a really, really long time, a lot of us. And I think one step toward loving your, your brother inside the church family and sisters inside the church family is you have to take a step toward a few things. One would be toward a home group. If you're just like a weekend attender person, the, the, a step toward a home group is where all of these one another's play themselves out. So if you're not in a home group, it likely means that the one another's are not happening for you. Right? So, so another thing that we could maybe say with that is not just going to a home group, but it's actually like participating and doing the one another's in the home group. It's actually being involved in that sort of a way where those one another's are playing um, themselves out. Uh, another way we could talk about that is not in home groups, but in serving. That there are a lot of people serving right now to make this thing happen. I mean, we'd love to invite you into that. It's how you can use your gifts for the building up and the encouragement of the body. And maybe a third way would be towards covenant membership. If you don't have a church home and you haven't nailed that down, September, we'll do a next round of Discover Stonegate, and we'd love to have you in on that. Okay, so that's all inside the context of the church family. Now, here is in the context outside the church family. What does it look like to love our neighbor, not in the church family, but outside the church family? And let me just say two quick things about this. First of all, that I think one of the best ways we can love those outside the church family is, listen to this, by doing a wonderful job of loving those inside the church family. That one of the reasons that I think a lot of people outside the church have discounted the church and really discounted Jesus has nothing to do with Jesus and it has everything to do with how we love one another. Right? And so this is, this is John um, 13. This is where, you know, Jesus says a new command I give you. It's not just love like, you know, you, you love yourself, but love like I have loved you. And here's how people, the world's going to know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Like these one another's are playing themselves out in your life, in my life. So, so maybe we could say it this way. The most, per, the most persuasive argument for faith in Jesus is the Christian community. It's these one another's playing themselves out in your life, in my life. Listen, that's the most pervasive or persuasive argument. 
that, that you'll ever make is the way that you lay your life down in love of your brother and your sister. Most, you know, maybe you can think of it this way. It is the way that we pave the way. Christian love is what paves the way for us actually to talk about what Jesus has done for us in love. And here's the second way I think we can talk about that on what it means to love those outside the church. If the Bible is really true, if it's really true, and like outside of Jesus, that we are left in our sin, that we are dead in our sin and trespasses, like Ephesians 2 would tell us, that, that Jesus, our, our God, is so offended by our sin that in Romans 6, he has assigned our sin the death penalty. Not, not only are we going to die physically, but, but one day we will die forever eternally. It means we're going to spend an eternity away from God Almighty and all things good. That apart from Jesus, that is the fate of every human being. Uh, let's, let's tease that out. If that is true, wouldn't we all say that the most loving thing we could do for anyone outside of Jesus is to talk about Jesus? Is to talk about Jesus, the only one who can remedy their problem before God. The only one who can remedy the fact that apart from, you know, Jesus, they're going to experience the wrath of God for all eternity. If that's true, the most loving thing any of us can do is to make sure we are praying and pleading for God to save people who don't know him. We've talked about this a lot over the last few months, you developing a top five. Just your top five people who who you're pretty convinced don't know Jesus, who you are going to be begging God to save, pleading for God to bust through and to break through their heart and rescue. Who you're going to be willing to befriend and get into relationship with. Have across the dinner table. Talk about Jesus too. And I just want to encourage you. I think the most loving thing you can do for those outside of, of, of Jesus, outside the church family, is for you to have a top five and for you to be pleading and praying and for you to be moving toward them, talking about all that Jesus has done for you and is willing to do for them. The most loving thing we can do for those outside of Jesus. Okay, let me finish by this and, and we'll, uh, we'll be done. Let me finish by grounding the command, by grounding it, by giving what this command is, it sits on in the Bible. And at the end of the day, this command sits on what God has done for us, right? So, so let, me, let me come at this from two ways and, and we'll wrap up here. First thing I want to tell you is that, and this is going to sound really similar to the last week. I want to remind you that there is something at stake for you personally with how you love God and love other people. Like the Bible is crystal clear on this, that God has created you in such a way where for human beings to flourish, for for human beings to be all that God has created them to be, for, for human beings to be all of that, they have to be people who are doing what they're created to do, namely love God and love your neighbor. Love people. This is what God has created human beings to do. And what sin does for all of us in the room is rather than having our lives bent out on God and others, sin curves us in on ourself where we can't get past ourselves to God or others. So, so I want you to see what's at stake here. Like what God is inviting you into is a, is a bottomless ocean of joy. He's inviting you into what you were created to do. He's aligning you with how he created you. He's showing you that this command to love God and love others is really God loving you by showing you what it is that is going to satisfy the deepest aches of your heart. But what it is that's going to be good for you. What it is that's going to bring honor to him and be good for you. This is what he's showing you in this command. So I, I want to just remind you of this. That when God is saying love 
me above all else and love your neighbor as yourself, as I've loved you. When God is saying that, he is not looking at you saying, and listen, I really wanna rob your joy from you. I'm, I'm gonna ruin it all for you. It's not what he's saying. God is saying, and I'm going to walk you into what you were created to be and do. I'm gonna walk you into deep and abiding and everlasting joy in the middle of this. And lastly, so I want you to know what's at stake here, and then let's talk about the grounding of it. That at the end of the day, our love for other people is based on God's love for us. That's the grounding of it. That when I think about this command, there is a part of me that feels like, this is impossible. There is no way I'm gonna love God and other people like that, like, like Jesus is commanding here. There is no way for that to happen. I love how one pastor said this. He said, I say it is overwhelming, this command to love God and others, because it seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am that other person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though they were me. That's what Jesus is saying here. And can we all see that there is no way that's going to happen on our own? That that is beyond human capacity to do. That every person in the room, to love others like God is calling us to love others, we need supernatural help from that. We need grace for that. And that is exactly what the Bible says. That we need a changed heart. We need to meet love before we're ever gonna be able to give that sort of love. And, and this is the testimony of 1 John four nineteen. We ended with it last week. I'm gonna end with it this week. We love why? Because he first loved us. Let me just make the whole, like the last two weeks really simple. Simple as I can make it goes like this. In, in 10 words, here's the point of the last two weeks. Is that God is telling us to, to do two things. Summarized in five words. We love God and love your neighbor. Those are the five words. This is what God is saying. Love God, love your neighbor. And he's also telling us how to do that. Because he first loved us, five words. Love God, love your neighbor, because he first loved us. That is the only way it's ever going to happen. If we're ever going to love God and love others, like Jesus is saying, we need to love God and love others, the only way for that to ever happen is for you and I to receive and rest in God's extravagant love for you and I. That's it. That's the only way. I love how Charles Spurgeon, preacher of a couple of centuries ago, says this. He says, love must feed on love. The very soul and life of our love to God and love to others is God's love to us. Like in other words, if we're ever going to love like God has called us to love, we've got to feed on, rest and receive God's love for us. Just think about this practically. If you're ever going to love a person who is unlike you, the only way that will ever happen is for you to know deep in your bones that God has loved you, a person very unlike him. The only way you're ever going to love a person who not only is unlike you, but dislikes you, who hates you, is to know that, that Romans 5, 8, and 9, that while you were still an enemy of God, that, that's, that's an extreme version of hate right there, isn't it? When you were an enemy of God, God displayed extravagant love for you by sending his own son to stand in your place. God's sinless son taking on all of your sin and you, the sinful one, you getting all of Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. See, if we're ever going to love our neighbor like that, especially those who are unlike us, dislike us, hate us, we're gonna have to get deep in our bones just how extravagant God's love to us was. 
a hateful neighbor. That's where it starts. Love God, love your neighbor, because he first loved us. That's where it is. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.